right. One part of marketing is called copywriting. But whenever I say the word copywriting, people think of trademarking. It has nothing to do with the legal process of uh, trademarking or protecting what you've written. It's really about wordsmithing. And the people who are best at marketing and wordsmithing typically had a sales background and they know how to sell people. And they're taking that sales journey and experience and objections and turning it into um, marketing copy or an advertisement or a book. Um, and so we're going to cover just a few strategies here on why this is so powerful. And this is a famous example. Um, does anyone know, like, this is a same, same size piece of paper. I mean, nowadays they have a, a mo more modern one that does have different uh, quality of paper on it. But does anyone know the main difference between these two um, pieces of paper? Yeah, the, basically the, the message on the paper. Right? It's the same paper, same blue and red threads, just piece of paper, but one is 100 times the value because the message is different. And so your pitch deck or your one pager can look like a million dollars or it can look like $100 million, can look like $10 or a million dollars. So um, the message matters a lot. It's not like you can use the same colors, the same font size. It's kind of like the black belt versus the green belt. Um, so whatever level you're at, try to move up a belt in the message that you're conveying on the paper. Um, and to some people in some countries, you know, currencies mean different things. A dollar holds more weight in some countries than others, right? Just like in some industries, some demographics, it's going to be different. You want to appeal to a very specific pain or need so that when they see what you did, they say, oh, wow, I didn't know that was available. Or, oh, we've been looking for something like that. Or that's refreshing. So number one complaint is that everyone does that the wrong way, or they're not really aligned in the deal because they say they have skin in the game, but charge all these fees up front. And then they're basically have no skin in the game after nine months of owning the asset and we're the ones at risk as the investor. Um, and so there's a wealth management firm in Canada that only serves physicians. And they said, and they managed a billion dollars of wealth. And they said, oh, let's, let's work with, doc, with dentists as well. And they tried to. But they're so dialed in on physicians. The dentist didn't want to work with them and they failed and they retracted and just went straight back to physicians only because they're so dialed in on that. Um, and so that's just one example of being like really specific to the needs of one group. How many people here know Brian Tracy? Great. So I've um, interviewed him a couple of times. He's interviewed me once. He's a mentor to me early on, and he's written over 80 books. Um, he's been paid six-figure contracts to do training for like Procter & Gamble, big companies like that. And he will get hired sometimes based on the title of one of his books. And they're just looking around for someone credible, kind of like me speaking in Belgium uh, when I shouldn't have been. And they're just like, all right, that person's not going to mess it up. Or, oh, they've got the number one best-selling book. Let's just hire them. And then the, he knows they've never read the book because they'll say, oh, well, can you speak on this, this, and this? Because that's what we're trying to push in our company. He'll be like, oh, well, that's totally against what my book says. Uh, that's why you hired me. And then they'll have to figure that out. So he knows they don't read the book. Or sometimes they'll just flat out tell him, like, we haven't had time to read it yet, but we saw you had 400 reviews that were positive. So, And so his point was that if someone actually reads your book, obviously it shouldn't be garbage. It should make them even a bigger fan of yours. But a lot of people are never going to read the book. But having the book there for those who do want to read it and having the perception of having the number one book and having a helpful book, just the title of the book helps bring them in. I know um, one of my friends had a valuable book on real estate and it was called, I think it was called like Dancing in the Rain or something like that. But um, when you read that, you don't know like what you're going to get and you're like, oh, well, you wrote the book called Dancing in the Rain. So, you know, you're my guy, right? Um, so nothing, nothing against him. It was a valuable book, but that title doesn't really bring in the exact uh, target demographic if you want to take a direct marketing response, best practices approach to doing things. Um, the purpose of the copy needs to be very clear. Is it the purpose of your email to get them on a phone call? Is it get them to click on the Loom video? Is it get them to 
invest right now on the very first interaction with you because you're just raising a thousand dollars at a time via crowdfunding. Um, what next step in the process you're trying to get them to is really critical. Telling a story is really important. Um, you can study like the hero's journey format, which many of you know, so I'm not going to bore you with that. But um, storytelling is more influential than like giving a bunch of bullet points and why you're the best in the world uh, whenever you can do that. So like Joe Williams from uh, Keller Williams or Michael Scott, who sold his company for $100 million, they both asked me, what should I speak about at one of the future events? And I said, well, just sharing your journey and then stopping every couple of slides and be like, this was a huge lesson. This was wrong and probably cost me $10 million. And then keep on going and say, hey, this is something that we did right. This is what we learned from it. So you should always do this. And then telling the story and just telling that natural story and then pausing to make sure and shine a light on the most important components was my advice to both of them because it's just a natural way to add value to other people. Uh, use pictures and videos. I need to update this because I now have my team picture underneath my email signature, but also it's still formatted mostly just like this. We have our one-liner there. We have links to our social media and websites there. Uh, many times I'll, I'll look at my calendar and be like, oh, I've got a call with John. Okay. And I go on my email and his signature is just John. And then I, I don't, I can't get to his phone number, um, or someone won't have their contact details on there. And I'd like to send them a text message or reach out. So it seems like 101, business 101 to have an email signature. And just because you don't doesn't mean your company's not professional, but everyone who has an email signature this dialed in or more. Um, is usually very highly correlated with a professional, well-rounded company that wasn't started last year. Is one thing I've found. That doesn't mean something super negative. You don't have it dialed in, but it almost always means you're pretty well established if it's real dialed in. It's just my experience. But more professional, someone might have shaken your hand at an event and then forget who, who you are by name, but they'll recognize your face, right? And so having that on your business card is important. Having that on your email signature is important. Um, I don't even know if you're allowed to do this at big companies these days, but you know, when I was back in college, I put it, even put it on my resume so I wouldn't get lost in the crowd of 80 resumes. Um, there's a reason why on LinkedIn, they have your headshot there, right? Dean Jackson always tells a story like, if you want to attract somebody into your funnel, you need to offer them a warm chocolate chip cookie. Like if you've been on United Airlines in first class or a Doubletree Hotel, you might be trying not to eat a lot of gluten or not eat too much sugar. And then your willpower breaks down 10 PM at night when you're checking in or whatever. And you're like, all right, give me that damn thing. And you eat it anyways. Right. And so when you make an offer to someone, if you are in a coffee shop cold or someone's inbox cold, then it has to be a pretty appealing offer of something they actually really want in a current thing that they need in their life or been looking for, or find refreshing, or it's built just for them. Right. Um, and, then you're more likely to have them reach out and take that warm chocolate chip cookie. They're not going to want to take your cold offer. They don't want to buy your vacuum. They want the warm chocolate chip cookie. So you need to figure out what is the warm chocolate chip cookie for you. For a medical practice owner, it might be that equity track program designed for their doctors and associates that we provide them with at no cost. For someone else, it could be introducing them to investors when really they're a real estate broker, uh, not even asking for the business. Um, for somebody else, it might be my 14 part mini series on how to start a family office, um, which someone here in the room watched and reached out to me and said, they're going to be at the workshop here today. And by people watching those 14 videos, they're moving through the funnel and becoming very highly qualified, almost as much as meeting me in person. Cause I give so much advice over 14, seven minute videos on one topic within that mini series. And they can see that we're obviously adding value first without charging a dollar, um, for it. So you have to design the warm chocolate chip cookie for the demographic. You know, if your demographic is gluten-free, then you have to somehow make it a healthy chocolate chip cookie, right? So you have to 
it's unique for you. It's not like, oh, now that I've said mine, maybe someone in the room is going to copy what I do, right? Like copying what I said for you is not going to work because you have a different sandbox, you have a different avatar, you have a different competition. So it all has to be changed. And Dean Jackson, he always says that um, instead of arguing back and forth with someone, trying to like convince them that you're credible, if you just have a compelling first offer, it's 10 times better than a convincing argument back and forth. So you want the offer to be so compelling, people are like, yeah, I'll do that. Or yeah, I'm in. That sounds great. Um, so you want to design that up front. David Ogilvy uh, was the smart, smartest marketer to, to live last century, according to Time Magazine. He was the only marketing PR person that was named one of the 100 most influential people of the 1900s. And David Ogilvy had this advertisement. It says the loudest thing in the Rolls Royce at 60 miles per hour is the clicking of the clock on the dashboard. Uh, and it's an advertorial. So it looks like an article, but it's actually influencing a buying decision and selling you a Rolls Royce. And they're so effective that like Inc. Magazine and others have to say, this is an advertorial on the side because it basically almost like tricks people to buy something so influentially that it has to be disclosed in a magazine. Because in a magazine, the assumption is, oh, there's helpful articles and then there's an advertisement for something. Um, but some of the articles in the magazine are blatantly just trying to sell you. This was my first advertisement. Um, I made this when I was 17 years old. It has more imagery than some of your guys' fact sheets, I think. Uh, and I have my phone number on there. Sometimes people forget to put any imagery or even contact details on their one-pager. Uh, I have a title at the top, which makes it relatively clear what I do. Um, and I stuffed this in mailboxes all around my neighborhood until the local county called me because some person complained to the local county that some kid was stuffing mailboxes with landscaping service flyers. And luckily, I answered and not my parents. And... I had to stop doing that. But this was my first piece of work in marketing. And what I try to do is notice who else is doing something that gets my attention because I'm busy like you are. And you say, out of everything on Facebook, everything in these magazines, what really popped out? Um, and like one I remember, I still remember today and I want to use one day, is like I remember this Mercedes commercial that said, uh, you know, I wake up in the morning in my premium bed, I go out and have a cup of my premium coffee, I sit down and have my premium gluten-free bread, and I walk out to my premium car and it was like a Mercedes or something like that. And it was just like aligning like someone they're trying to aim at a demographic where they don't want like premium, premium piece of junk, you know, and it's just an interesting concept. We, we copied something we saw in Sky Miles growing up where it said like best hand surgeons in America. And it has like six hand surgeons who obviously just paid to be there, but apparently were at least board certified and legitimate hand surgeons, but they obviously paid to be on that magazine. And then the company was splitting the cost between the surgeons, making a margin and paying for that ad. So we did that in Inc. Magazine, took out a full page ad and had commercial real estate power players and had seven people split the cost of that. And it went out to 2.3 million people. But it took me eight years to use that strategy. I saw that and I ripped it out. I was like, one day I'm going to do that. But it took me a long time to figure out how to do it, who to do it with. And we don't do it all the time because it wasn't like we got an amazing response, to be honest. Um, didn't work super well for Inc. Magazine for whatever reason. Um, but it's just an example of what's called swipe copy, which Frank Kern, another marketing expert, says like, tear out, take pictures of, take notes of things that worked on you or that you think were highly effective and then use that for your own business, but you ingrain it with your own DNA. It's not like you copy-paste what, you know, uh, it's not like I'm going out to hand surgeons and trying to exactly copy what they're doing. I adapt it to our area. David Ogilvy has a couple books you could read on direct response marketing, so we're not going to go super deep on this right now, but he became... Famous because he became over-specialized in his niche. He read every book written by all of his competitors, listened to all the talks, magazine articles, interviews, everything. 
he'd go into a pitch and say, all the competitors pitching for your account, Campbell Soup, is going to tell you this, 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 and this. We not only know what they're all going to say because we've studied them, like Mark Cuban suggests you should, but we also are more effective because we're all about direct response. We're going to have, you made up like the whole idea of having coupons you take into the store to drive traffic in so you could track the response and really get people to take action right now. Not just, oh, and you're cold, think Campbell's Soup. So it's like, no, come to the store right now, today, and save three bucks on Campbell's Soup. And then people would. And they can not only see the results, but made them take action. That's what good wordsmithing does. It, it sells them with words. And if you're a salesman otherwise, then it, it helps you become a better marketer or wordsmither because you know what it takes to sell. You know what the objections are. 